if at some moment you show a moment of, let's just say, zero warmth, people remember that. That sticks with people. That flash of lack of empathy, that goes down on your permanent record. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. I'm going to kick off today with a quote and the quote goes like this. It is better to be feared than loved if one cannot be both. That's a quote by Niccolo Machiavelli, an Italian philosopher, well-known thinker. And it is a quote that I, I think has followed me throughout much of my career. It is both a quote and a question that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. And as a leader, as a leader of people, as a leader of a community, which would you rather be, feared or loved, if you cannot be both? Now, for most of us, that question brings up different triggers, the desire to be liked, the fear of being seen as a pushover, the pain of watching our plans dissolve one day because we were just obviously not compelling enough in that moment to do, as my next guest would describe, bend the world to meet our will. So what if I told you that you can be both? In fact, what if I told you that the most charismatic, influential, and inspirational people in our world, in your world, are always both? Now, everybody wants to know how to be more influential. It's the entire focus of this whole podcast. But most of us don't really think that we can have that kind of magnetism or charisma. The kind of magnetism or charisma that we associate with people like Bill Clinton, Oprah Winfrey, unless, of course, we happen to be born with it. And that was one of the myths that I first tackled when I started really diving into this topic. It's the myth of the inheritance myth. The myth that you are either born influential or you are not. You are either born with authority or not. You are either born compelling or you are not. And in 20 years of my career, I've never seen that to be true. I've only ever seen it to be tools, strategies, um, behaviors that you can learn, that people have learned, either fortunate enough to see them and learn them as children in the communities they were born into or the families they were born into, or had to very deliberately go about and develop these skills as adults. So when I saw that question, fear or love, it got me thinking and then that got me researching and then that led me on to my next guest, John Neffinger. John believes that influence or being compelling is not something that we are born with. It is something that we can learn. In his excellent book, Compelling People, which he co-authored with Matthew Cohut, They trace the path to influence through a balance of strength and warmth, two factors. Each of those and the entire premise seems very simple, but only a few of us ever figure out the tricky task of projecting both at once. In the book, they draw on cutting edge social science research, as well as their own work with Fortune 500 executives, presidential candidates, TED speakers, Nobel Prize winners. The book itself explains how we size each other up and how we can learn to win the admiration, respect, affection, and authority that we desire to get done what we are trying to get done. In this episode, we unpack why words like chemistry and charisma are generally unhelpful. In short, as I have said, it's because they give us the impression that you either have it or you don't, and that they are not just tools that you can learn at any stage in your life or career. We talk about the two critical criteria when it comes to being a compelling force, strength and warmth, and why every single one of our social judgments is based on those two aspects. Believe me, when you, when you finish listening to this, you will have a whole new lens that you will view and observe every single interaction, be it on the phone, um, be it with your team, be it the times when you are successful, not successful, somebody is successful influencing you or is not successful influencing you, you'll start to see that polarity between strength and warmth as an ongoing dance that sometimes we nail and sometimes we don't. Managing the dance, that's the next thing. The dance between cold and warm. What comes first? That was my number one question. What comes first? And how the most charismatic, influential people in our world are usually the ones that move continually and deliberately, 
Notice that word deliberately between those two places. John's experience working with Hillary Clinton to prepare for her first debate with Donald Trump. You will remember that one. And if you don't, go check it out. It's an interesting case study in um, body language and use of force and authority. The question I had for him was knowing what happened, watching what happened, how would he prepare her now? Now, we also talk about how to deal with interruptions. And yep, you guessed it, back to Trump again. (laughs) And this time the Biden-Trump debates as an ideal case study of how you deal with vocal force when you're in an interaction. And finally, why the job of the president and in President Reid, leader, CEO, parent, why the job of the president is not just to run the country. The job of the president is to lead the country, which means giving voice to people's sentiments and telling the story of what comes next. If there is one thing I would love you to reflect on just while you're listening to this conversation, it's the concept of the tilt, that your role as a leader, positional or not, is not necessarily to bend the world to meet your will or to fold at the bendings of other people. It's to stay centered, get still, take a moment if you need to, ask for a moment if you need to, and just feel into what's out of balance in this interaction or this dynamic. And then once you've got the answer, using the lens, strength and warmth, use the power of your will, use the power of your certainty and intention to tilt back the scales. On that note, sit back, stride out, pull out a protein bar for those of you who are still on some kind of crazy New Year's detox and soak up the lessons from the front line of persuasion from the incredible John Neffinger. Welcome to the podcast, John Messenger. Thank you so much for having me. Let's let's kick off with the question that I'm obsessing about at the moment, which is that people who have interesting ideas, people who have a radar for interesting ideas are usually are usually the people who find them first, who are looking for them. So what's what's an idea at the moment that you've come across either in relation to your work, not in relation to your work that you're just you're kind of obsessing about? The list is long, I would say, but uh, the one that pops, I guess, right to mind, it's less that I'm obsessed. It feels like it's following me around, honestly. Um, it's not a new idea. There was a character by the name of Eli Pariser, who uh, I'm fortunate to have gotten to know, who coined the term a long time ago, looking at the emergent social media filter bubble. So the, the idea is that um, he was talking about uh, search algorithms and the idea that the, the search companies got to know you and in in uh, service of making more money for themselves and making you happier and wanting to buy more things learned your preferences and so when you would search for a thing it would try and give you the things it thought you wanted to hear and maybe that would lead to buying something or maybe that wasn't about a purchase at all but it was the things they thought you would be interested in so you would continue continue coming back to see them. And the idea was that that would balkanize essentially our experience on the internet, because instead of everybody learning the same thing from the same search, that we would each get a slightly different, you know, piece of the elephant to, to feel, uh, of our own. And that that would tear us slowly apart uh, till one person's reality didn't look all that similar to another person's reality. And this was, gosh, this must have been at least 15 years ago now. And maybe, maybe, maybe less, but a while ago. And fast forward to now, um, when today, as we speak, I think, uh, a couple of miles from where I'm standing here in Washington, D.C., I'm up in the sort of safe suburb part, but uh, at the Capitol, there's an impeachment trial going on because of another thing that happened there about a month ago where people who were convinced, deeply convinced that they were being very patriotic and heroic and standing up for the American Constitution and all things right and just basically tried to tear that system apart. Um, 
because they understood it in a different way. And so uh, that uh, seems very prescient and comes into my thinking a lot. Not so much that Google did this to us. I think that wasn't the the website that did it. There were some others. Um, But the idea that we've been torn apart and it's not totally clear how to put our realities back together again and, and, and create a shared space. So that is, that is what I'm thinking about. You know, I, I have, I have spent a bit of time with that idea. I've heard of it differently referred to the echo chamber of me and how we're, we're all in these echo chambers of me right now, where the more, the more heavily we get into an idea, the more heavily we get into an opinion, the more the, our search results and every single thing we look at social media the more it just feeds back to us more of the same, more of that opinion, more evidence to back up that opinion, more evidence to back up that point of view. And if you think about how we're wired, you know, we're, we're very freshly out of newspapers. You know, if you look at us as, as a society, we're very freshly out of newspapers. And so we, we still have this idea that something that we read that has been written by a, per se, an, an expert is the is the version of reality it is a version of reality or the reality and so we haven't quite settled with the idea that everything that we see is one person's opinion that has been fed to us because they have the same opinion as us and that it is incumbent upon us and this is the real big piece i think for the for the next decade it has become our responsibility which is a tough thing to get your head around when you have so many other responsibilities but it has become our own responsibility to seek out research and get curious about other points of view. And I'll give you an example about that during the last few months and everything that's been going on in your neck of the woods politically. I I was reading a certain newspaper and I was the more I read this newspaper, the more I was like, this is just more, it, this just feels like more and more the same of my own ideas. You know, this is just more and more of my own ideas coming back at me. And so I started reading the opposition newspaper. So I would read an article in one and then I would flip over and read Fox News. I'd flip over and read Fox. And trying to take responsibility for maintaining a balanced, inclusive, um, pluralistic viewpoint. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes bandwidth. Um, and I think that's, again, going to be one of the shocks over the next decade, that suddenly this is our responsibility. Nobody's taking this responsibility for us anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And then and then I think there, there are three more layers behind that, right? Because Fox News has a perspective and it has an agenda. And I think those are different because uh, it's certainly Fox News viewers and the the consumers of all of it and its sort of cousins and progeny. Many of them, many of them wholeheartedly believe like the people who made it all the way to the Capitol, uh, last month in, in, in the import and, the and, the authenticity of what they are hearing there. And then there's actually a class of characters that's kind of carnival barkers and don't really follow the same rules. And that is a, that is a piece of it too. And how do you, how do you, first of all, how do you tell the difference? And then how do you approach those things differently? And, um, I know that the American media here struggled mightily when you had, um, (laughs) the president who shall no longer be named. Um, when you had that guy, um, who was just more or less transparently, if you watch closely saying whatever he thought would move the world in the direction that was going to serve him, um, do you do you treat that as a good faith utterance? Do you do you report that as one side of the story, or do you try and report what you actually think he's up to? Um, and and it, like you say, I think, and that's the key point: is professional journalists, professional like hyper educated uh, people, struggle to figure out how to address this stuff. Your average person who's trying to, you know, get dinner ready and navigate through their day and worry about a pandemic and whatever else. Good luck. The old rules for how a society used to work, just not clear how they, not clear that they apply or how they could be restored. And it, it's there are plenty to be hopeful about in the world, but uh, I think that 
the scope of that challenge is a big one. And and one which, you know, we're going to see emerge. It's a fresh challenge. It's a new challenge. We've we've not come across it before. It's come upon us relatively quickly, if you look at the, the span of, you know, human development. And also the, the consequences of it have been very dramatic. And so you would hope that, you know, in the next few years, we will find a way to navigate that. And I think that takes responsibility at the top of the media world. It takes responsibility at the top of the corporate world, specifically tech. And it also, I think societally, it takes self-responsibility, you know, to take responsibility for the division that we find within our own communities and within our own nations and do what we can to address, to address that. Yeah. I, I'm think I'm fascinated. I have, I have five-year-old twins and they are, I, I learned so much from them way more than they seem to be learned from me. And I just wonder them growing up as digital natives, whether they will have an entirely different approach to, you know, privacy is the one that they talk about a lot. Um, but to all of this, um, and, and how do you sort through a piece of information that you come across and, and how do you decipher that and what do you do with that? And, uh, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, but I, you know, the internet was supposed to humanize everybody because we were supposed to be able to, um, you know, put ourselves in the shoes of people in faraway places. And now we have video and that's more real than ever. And yet we also see it dividing us against ourselves and balkanizing us. And I, I wonder, we're not, that's not pulling us back towards something like, you know, the religious wars in Europe a thousand years ago. I, I don't even know. Um, but I'm trying to be hopeful. I mean, I'm probably not sounding very hopeful. Am I? Well, I, these are the questions, right? These are the questions. These are the questions. And I think that we are still a generation that grew up with a single point of truth. You know, as I said, newspapers, single point of truth, one news channel on TV, the news is at six o'clock, single point of truth. I was going to say not just newspaper, but the TV channel for me, it was Walter Cronkite, um, succeeded by Tom Brokaw. Oh no, John Chancellor and then Tom Brokaw. But yeah, the one news anchor, that was true. And I think that your children who are five, my, my children who are four and below, they will not grow up in a world of a single point of truth. And, and hopefully as, as dangerous as that seems, that will also wire them to understand that there is no single point of truth. It is up to me and, and my ability to search and filter and sift um, that they will, that having not had that background will mean that they won't be out there in the digital world trying to search for a single point of truth, which is what I feel like we do. Yeah. I, <laughs> I will try and remember that the next time that I really want their single point of truth to be me. <laughs> You know what? Good luck with that because I've never managed that. All right. Well, let's let, let's segue back. Let's segue back to to a topic where we have more of a handle on it. Let's talk about let's talk about your book. You know, one of one of the things that I love, and I love so many things, but one of the things that I love about your book and your work is that it gets really practical about how to be more compelling. And the way that it does that is that it debunks what I feel are unhelpful words like chemistry and charisma. You know, the the words that we throw out there to give the impression that you either have it or you don't? Yes. There's an aesthetic appeal to things that are mysterious. And and so so that kind of goes along with it. I get that. But as an analytical exercise, they do way more to obscure what's going on than to help you in any way understand the world. Well, they do because they, they give out the impression, and I've watched this play out over two decades. You have too. They give this impression that it's either, it's a superpower, right? She has it. He doesn't. I can't see you right now, but that, you know, I'm assuming you've got your fingers up in inverted commas. I have, you know, the it, she has it, he has it. So talk, so talk to me about why, why debunking that myth, the myth of it, why was that so important to you when you, it came to writing the book? It's a wonderful place to start because the idea that, and look, human interactions are complicated and are definitely all these different factors swirling around together to create the experiences that we have one another for sure. But hopefully uh, shining a light on that, trying to make a little bit of sense of what's going on there could be an empowering um, thing for people, especially for people who, you know, and, and it's it's funny, I did not write this book with, um, with particular constituencies of audiences in mind as much as I might, but one of the most sort of stark and pleasant surprises and the reception of the book um, was from folks who I think the technical term is are on the spectrum um, have some some of the symptoms of um, Asperger's or that find 
human interactions confusing. Um, and the reaction of folks there was, oh, this makes more sense to me now. Now I, now I get why people are behaving the way they are and reacting to me the way that they are. And you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to have any particularly fancily named condition to find other people confusing. <laughs> and right. Is that fair to say? Okay. That's a basic premise there. And so, so looking at especially this phenomenon, which, you know, there's that person who has it and, and being able to understand a little bit more what that's about. Um, and also, yes, being able to reproduce some of that it when it matters for you and whoever you want to be in the world and whatever you want to do in the world. Um, that's a, that's an empowering thing. And that's a, that's a useful thing. And so we felt really good about, about that piece. I feel like you really did that. I feel like you, this book, it really took this thing that was out there in the sky, you know, this thing that no one could quite, the it, the thing that no one could quite put their finger on it, but I'll know it when I see it. And you brought it down and you just embedded it in concrete. And, and the way that you did that was so deceptively simple, but I can't imagine how much complexity you had to wade through to get there. And it was that we judge each other primarily on just two criteria, just two. One is strength and one is warmth. And every single one of our social judgments is based on those two aspects on us weighing up those two aspects in another human being. Can you, I mean, that's my, that's my translation. Can you walk through the, the depth in that and how you came to that conclusion? Absolutely. And what you say about the deceptively simple at the end and yet so much complexity to sort through to get there is absolutely right. So we, and I can tell you the story of how we got there too. We, uh, we, my co-author and I, um, were interested in politics and helping candidates and, um, and, and coaching them to basically not, not to do anything fancy, generally talk less about Byzantine policy stuff that only they understood and their audience didn't. And it just kind of come across as regular, relatable human beings. And so we were embarked on this, um, working with politicians and we would over and over again, see the same pattern that you would, you or people who were working with were either, um, doing just what I was describing. They were, they were going on about policy and they had very strong views about the policy, which is why they were in the business they were in. And they would, basically lecture at their audience about some policy that maybe nobody could follow. Um, but it wasn't about relating to their audience as human beings. It was all about the policy or, or they cared a lot about people and maybe spent too much time on some of the boring aspects of the policy, but they're, they were so eager to please and to be liked by their audience that you just got the sense that this was not somebody who you should entrust to lead a, a fight of great importance in a legislature because they were going to get steamrolled. And, and so those people, we kind of tried to stiffen their spines. And then the other people, we would try and coax a smile out of now and then, and a, you know, a story about their family or that kind of thing. So somebody had a, a chance of seeing them as other than a, a, a lecturer, essentially. And the more that pattern reproduced itself, the more it seemed like we were onto something bigger. And uh, we, so we started looking at the social science on this. And sure enough, there were traces of this. Uh, and there was some research on this. And we met some of the researchers. And we started talking to them. And they started doing more research in our areas. And we started um, recasting what we were trying to say with our clients in their terms. And this theory was born that the vast majority of how it is that we size somebody up, um, that we come to that kind of, whether it's a snap judgment or if you spend a little bit longer with them, nevertheless, that, that sort of feeling you get and you're not totally sure where it came from, where does that come from? And the more we looked at it, the more it really seemed like it was all about these two things. One is, can this person bend the world around them to their will? Can they make things happen? Do they get stuff done? That is strength. And that can take tons of different forms. You know, they, they you know, you can have the sort of um, classic, you know, bodybuilder prancing around the beach kind of person. Sure, there is a physical aspect to that, being taller or stronger physically. But there's also um, any number of skills that clearly uh, project strength. 
that make this person seem like um, they are capable in a way that matters to me because they're in my world. And then there is a, an important other piece of that, and that is attitude, really. And um, we talk about often skill, um, which is that capacities, but then will being the other piece to this, how determined or, you know, there, there's some social science around the concept of grit, um, the stick to and that determination as much as anything is what comes through in a lot of the social signals that we send body language and uh, word choice and a tone of voice and that kind of thing. Um, so that's the strength side of the piece and people who project strength command respect. They, we have to respect them because they're in our world and they're going to change it. They're going to make stuff happen. They're going to, they're going to bend it to their will. It's and it's our world. So we got to take account of that. But on the other side, um, is the warmth piece. And so that determines whether or not we like these people, um, who, if they are projecting strength, um, whether they're on our team or not, that's essentially what the warmth is. Yes. It's, are they personable for sure? Um, are they fun? But it's more than that is it's more, is this my kind of person? Do we want the world to look the same way at the end of the day? If they're terraforming my world, am I going to like the result? Um, and so this affinity piece, you can talk about this in terms of affinity and agency if you want to get fancy. Um, the, the affinity being the warmth and the agency being the strength. That combination, um, those two things are what matter to us about other people. And so it, it makes sense, really, that that would shape our uh, our, our emotional reaction to them. It's just what's partially what gets fascinating is first of all, the clarity of that, like you say. Um, but then when you start looking for all the little cues that lead to the judgment of more or less strength and more or less warmth, um, then we get into all of these, this nonverbals and these other things that are really hard to follow. Um, if you're not thinking about them, uh, deliberately, if you're not looking for them and understanding what you're seeing. Um, now, once you are, once you understand why, you know, people holding their hand in one direction versus another direction, you, your, you know, kind of lizard brain sees that differently. Then it's, it's fascinating you can, you can see all these signals and you can get a sense of why your guts are reacting to this person the way that they are. Um, and then it's, then it starts, then it actually starts to get a little, you, you have trouble unseeing some of these things. Watching television becomes a totally different exercise <laughs> once you're looking for all of these little nonverbal things. But this, this strength and warmth piece is, first of all, it's, it's explaining this phenomenon. Okay. So that's great. Now I understand it. It doesn't actually change it necessarily. It does give me a set of tools potentially to try and understand how I'm moving through the world and, and to turn some knobs up and down to change the impressions that I'm making. That is an important thing, um, potentially for sure. Um, and that's kind of what the book walks through. I love that it really opens up your eyes or opens up my eyes as a lens because suddenly you're viewing how you are perceived as a, this dance between cold and warm, like between strength, strength and warm. And which brings us to like just a completely practical question is when you, when you are entering a room for the first time, potentially you're about to lead a team that you've never met before. Um, you're about to walk in and pitch for business in front of a panel of people that you don't have much of a relationship with. My assumption in that, and you question that, my assumption is that you lead with strength because as you've said, you know, strong people command our attention. You know, we're, we're trying to figure out if they're there to help us or harm us. So you, you come in with strength, but then you meet, once you've come in with strength, you then meet that strength with an equal amount of warmth. Is that right? Do I have that right? Uh, it is a fantastic question. And your, your intuition is guiding you in the right area. One question is, what does that mean? An equal amount of warmth? How do you, how do you do that? Um, and there's a particular study that pops right to mind here. And, and I actually think this started as a story and became a study, uh, later. And the idea is, the idea is this. So, so you have, uh, interviewees for a job, right? So it's not pitching for business. That sort of is right. Pitching business for services. And one of them has a stellar resume and uh, actually two of them have stellar resumes. And two of them have sort of like, yeah, you know, kind of adequate, whatever resumes. Um, and then you take those two cells and you split them sort of Cartesian style, the other way to give yourself a little two by two matrix. So two with stellar resumes, 
two with eh resumes. And then two of those folks um, conduct themselves just fine in the interview, uh, perfectly appropriate, uh, nothing remarkable. And the other two awkwardly, bumblingly spill coffee on themselves, <laughs> um, not on the interviewer, um, which would hurt, but, uh, but on themselves, on the interviewee. And so the, the quiz question is, what order do you think um, those candidates were preferred in? Stellar resumes, generally a good thing, right? For whatever it is you're hiring for, that's the one you're looking for. Uh, adequate is great, but stellar is, stellar is generally better. And the, but the issue, the issue with that though, is if somebody comes in and they're stellar and they're composed and they, you know, they do the interview exactly like, you know, textbook, great interview, solid, there is something that creeps in there because this person has projected a lot of strength. And even, you know, people get thoughts in their mind like, oh, I remember when I was that age, the interviewer could start thinking, or if the interviewer is that age, wait, this guy's going to work for me. How does that work? I don't know. Um, and so you start getting basically emotional backlash if you get somebody who's projecting all strength. And so this is one of the, one of the robust research findings is that when all you know about somebody is that they're strong or competent, you assume that that's the strategy that they use to move through the world, strength, competence. And so you, you assume like, yeah, they probably don't do so much warmth because like they don't need it. They get what they need by being strong. And so there's this hydraulic um, in inverse reaction, at least in the perception of that. And so the one with the, the people with the strong resumes, the one who does the great interview, mm, doubt creeps in. But guess what? The one who spills coffee on themselves, that person is suddenly humanized themselves. And it's like, oh, great resume, could do this job fine, but kind of an idiot. <laughs> I, I could totally relate to that. And that's the one um, who makes the strongest, best impression in the end, or at least the most appealing impression in the end in that two by two quadrant. So if you have a mediocre resume and you spill coffee on yourself, yeah, you got some work to do. Um, but the coffee thing actually helped balance um, the strength piece for uh, somebody with a with a strong resume, that kind of a that kind of a balance, you can achieve lots of different ways. And what I love about what you said was you project one and then project the other. Right? It's what it's not is try and dial one back. Um, when you're when you're dialing one back, um, hiding your light under a bushel. Right? Is that what it is or a barrel? I guess it's a barrel. I don't know. Anyway, hiding your not you're not showing off. Um, not being cocky is one thing, but, but not letting people see what you can really do really does hold you back. Um, and so you need to find another way to project the warmth. Uh, I don't know if you meant to Julie, to stumble into the gender roles part of this discussion. Um, but that's kind of where you brought us. Yeah, it is. And it's funny, you know, I, I, I very deliberately keep try to keep this podcast out of gender roles. You know, it's a very specific intent to have this podcast be, you know, out of that realm. There's a lot of discussion in that realm, a lot of discussion that I am a part of, but but this is not, you know, the space where I where I tend to do that. However, I think that you're right. There is such a disparity between the perception of women in strength compared to the perception of men in strength that, you know, it would almost not do the topic justice to not mention it. And I think for any men who are listening, who, you know, manage, mentor, parent, or love a woman, which is most, this information is, is really important as to how you support them going out into the world. I don't know if you called it the Oprah effect or if that's just, I'm a terrible note taker. I wrote the Oprah effect that could have just been me. And, you know, I've talked to, I've talked about Oprah a couple of podcast episodes ago because she, I use her as an example a lot simply because one of the things I hear the most from men and from women is I feel like I just, I feel like I need to be more confident. If I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that on, take that challenge, scale to that degree. I need more confidence. I need more char charisma. I need more, you, whatever you name it. And, you know, you use Oprah as an example. Now you wouldn't look at her and say, she's a, she's a confident lady. She has confidence. You wouldn't look at her and say that. You would say that that woman, that woman has gravity. Not only would I not mess with her, but I would really love a hug <laughs> from her at the same time. 
And that's that double down on both, the amplification on both. You can use your strength. And I'm going to talk a little bit in a minute about how you use your strength. You can use your strength, but then you can also double down on the warmth as well. Doing that simultaneously, do you, is it possible or do you move from one to the other without giving people whiplash? It is possible. It is easier for some folks than others, but it is definitely possible for all of us. Oprah is a fantastic example of all of the things, right? You know, and it's charisma and it's it and it's she's she's magical and we want to be like her. And in her element, in her show, uh, she is she's all of those things and she deli- obviously delivers the warmth right and I, I i'm trying to think of my iconic i'm not the world's biggest Oprahologist, but but everybody knows the like you get a car you get a car kind of thing right and and it's not just the that's was a pretty extraordinary show for her but the 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 connecting right and the warmth that comes through every single time but she's also in charge she's in charge of the the flow of the whole show the whole program she's in charge of the studio audience and she's confident and comfortable up there for sure and oh by the way when um who was the thousand little pieces guy um when one of the authors from her book club remember it turned out to be a, a great hoax she took him to the woodshed as they say and really dress him down for that. And it was a very natural thing for her to express that anger in that context and very confident, um, not ever out of control. I should note, she was angry, but she was in control the whole time. And that's a, there's a, a landmine there that's worth noting just as we fly past, which is to say that if you seem upset, um, which we think of as a synonym for angry, but if, you, if you're stern, that's one thing. If you are upset in the way that you convey that and come across, that can be uh, socially very harshly penalized for different groups. Um, and uh, white women, sorry, Julie, are one of the groups that still um, pay more of a price for showing that upsetness. Uh, white guys tend to get away with it. Black women, in- interestingly, have more latitude um, to show a little bit more anger without it being sort of held against them in some way. And I, I think this only is the messenger. I'm not a fan of any of these things, but they're worth noting in passing. Um, anyhow. No, I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you went. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to stop you because I'm really glad that you went in that direction and I don't want to fly past. I actually just want to, don't want to laser down here, not on the topic of gender, because I think, you know, for anybody who's not aware and has not noticed that it's harder for women to show anger and still maintain respect, you know, pay closer attention, but I don't want to go there where I want to go. So if you look at for, for men or for women to be seen as upset, out of control, unable to control your own behavior, that has consequences in the terms of your followership. However, I want to go on that word. I want to focus on the word you said. I want to focus on the word stern because from my experience, both myself as a leader and also with the leaders that I work with, this lowering of frequency, I can't think of a a better language around it. So we think often that in order to be strong, we need to get big, right? Our voices need to get big. Our bodies need to get big. Our volume needs to get big. And actually, I have found the converse to be true. I have found that going back to Oprah, going back to, you know, Obama, you pick those that are able to lower their frequency, lower their tone, access their gravity, sit in stillness and silence. Those are the ones that when we look around a room, we naturally go, I don't know who you are, but I know I feel like you have a lot of authority and I feel like you're someone that will, to use your language, bend the world. So, I just want to point out that this strength piece sometimes at its most powerful is to not say a word and lower your voice rather than raise it. Absolutely. And it, I wouldn't want to equate, you know, anger has been a and can be a, a strength display, if you will. But being able to show disapproval and be confident enough to show disapproval, but to show disapproval while being very much in control. And getting people to focus on what happened as opposed to having your own emotions just kind of leaking out in all directions, right? That demonstrating control while showing disapproval is much more powerful. Generally speaking, I would 100% agree with you there. And it took me a long time to figure that out. It took me, it took me, it did. It took me a long time to figure that out. It took me a long time to figure out how to express anger, disapproval, a boundary 
in a way that got the response and maintained the connection. I remember some feedback that I received and it took me, it took me years and I kept getting it wrong and it wasn't quite working out. And, and it was a, it was a part of my leadership that I had a lot of pain around. And I remember when I eventually figured it out and some feedback from somebody who worked for me a long time ago, she said, you know, what? I never heard you. I never heard you raise your voice. But when you lowered your voice, all of us stopped and paid attention. And, you know, that and that was a that was quite a moment in time for me because I was like, finally, I have found a way to hold a boundary, raise the intensity of a conversation when it's necessary, when it's urgent, without feeling like I have to play this game of arms flailing in the air, shouting, you know, without feeling like I have to jump into this persona, gorilla type persona. My ambition is that you earned that, which is to say that all of the other things that you did when you weren't so unhappy with the situation and how it had been going gave you, because most of the time, if you take the tone down and you speak more softly, people won't hear you, right? It's a complicated, busy world out there. But when somebody who had, people have learned, know what's going on and is worth paying attention to when they do that, um, then the respect that you've earned means you don't have to raise the voice to be heard in that moment. And so, so my suspicion is that that is a tribute to all the other things that you were doing besides dressing people down. I would hope that I was doing more than just dressing to people down. Although, you know, I think as a leader, as you've mentioned before, you give yourself an incredibly hard time for the, the way that you, your intentions and the way that you intend to come across and often the lens through which that is viewed. Um, and using your voice there, not just in terms of softness, but also the frequency, like bringing it down into your stomach, the way you would speak to a child if you wanted them to hear you and your preferred method wasn't to scream at them, which often you do feel like doing. Um, but I want to move on. Let's let's let let's move on because we've we've covered a whole bunch. I mean, we've gone from you know strength, warmth, volume, and everywhere in between. One thing I really I did want to talk to you about, and it's around the topic of being interrupted. And it comes out of watching the debates. Now, I know that you worked with Hillary Clinton to prepare her for her debates with Donald Trump. And I know that you having, you know, working in Washington and working with the people that you work with, you would have been very closely involved in the recent debates. I want to let's start with let's start with Hillary. Knowing what happened now, like looking back on what happened and for anybody who didn't see what happened, just imagine it like a a massive stalker following her around the stage, basically using the weight of his physicality to kind of overshadow any word that might come out of her mouth. And that was a, a global perspective. Looking back, knowing what you know, how would you, how would you have prepared her? We absolutely were prepared for that. And there are, there are some um, perspectives that say that, uh, you know, certainly the, the sympathy was with her in that moment. There is a there is a more advanced degree of difficulty maneuver um, that I know has has she's she's been haunted by ever since. Because if you think about it, in the entire campaign, she's not there interacting directly with Donald Trump that much until just that one moment. Um, and so, in her head, the the idea that she could have seized that moment and and turned on her heel and told him what's what and Tell, tell them just to sit the heck down um, that, that that could have been the moment when she put him in. His, but we understood that that was pretty much what he wanted, that he wanted to unnerve her to the point where she would get upset at him. Um, there's no question that she felt it. If you read her accounts of it afterwards, that she was very bothered by him stalking around the stage. But she did basically what was advised to her and what we practiced before, which was to ignore it and to kind of, you know, brush it off. Um, there was a, so, so to turn and have that confrontation and win it, um, would have been, even though people were very much on her side by that point, um, I think would have been, would have been pretty difficult, would have been pretty difficult. Now there is a, there is a trick if we must just talk about it in terms of the debate, uh, scenario where, what she could have done is to say, is basically to to use a rhetorical technique that he actually uses sometimes too, which is to define the parameters of his behavior in a lose-lose way. And what I mean by that is she could have turned to him and said, hey, Donald, you look pretty restless. You know, look, there's a chair right over there. Why don't you go have a seat? And then days on his feet, 
people read that as restless, or you could say disturbed, or some other adjective that's unflattering to him. But if he then goes and takes the seat, then he's doing what she said, which is emasculating to him. So she could have done in a casual way. You know what I'm saying? Um, he does. He this is actually a technique that Trump used a lot. And if you see him, uh, you go back and see him do this in some of the early Republican primary debates, um, where he's commenting on and narrating one of his rival's answers and saying, well, you know, he's either going to do this or he's going to do this. And basically giving the audience a lens through which to see the other person that's unflattering one way or unflattering the other. So, um, yes, I wish I had thought of this four and a half years ago. Yeah. The beauty, the beauty of hindsight. Um, but that could also play both ways, right? I'm just I'm just suddenly thinking that that could play. So you you can provide your audience with a lens to look at something where either way it's lose lose. You can also provide your audience with a way to look at something where either way, the you're supporting somebody else and whatever they do is going to be win win. So you can use that tool in a supportive frame. Sure, 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 sure. If you uh, yeah, if you define both options, the the issue is those two those two options. I'm not sure exactly how you pull that off because he was. He had like there was under no circumstances could he do what she advised or I guess he could have played it off some other way. But but, yeah, certainly you can set people up for success um, instead of trying to trap them in an unwinnable catch 22. Yeah. Where you where you define both of the options. And as a leader where you're where you're addressing a subordinate, absolutely defining both choices that they might um, even potentially the one you don't want them to take, but in a positive way to let you know that you're supportive of them is, is a great maneuver to, to, uh, to pull off. Yeah. Let's go to the most recent debates. And I want to look at it specifically through the lens of interruption. I think for most of us watching those debates, you know, it was just, it was so, it was almost unwatchable. The sheer level of, of, it felt like whiplash, you know, just the sheer level of, of interruption it was it was too staccato, like you couldn't follow a thing. Let's prep for that. Let's prep for 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 that kind of interruption. You've got Biden, you've got Trump. You know that every word that comes out of your mouth is going to be jumped on. How do you prep for that? So there are essentially uh, there's one big maneuver, and um, and a lot of complicated sort of perspectives on it. Here's what I would say: if you let yourself get interrupted all the time. And just shush and get steamrolled, that's a bad outcome, right? Because you look weak and the other person looks strong. If you, if the other person interrupts all the time and looks like a jerk, that's a good outcome for you, potentially, as long as you don't look too weak um, in doing it. So, there is a there is a balance there. What ended up happening in the first presidential debate this fall was Donald Trump was kind of out of control all over the place. And Biden did interrupt back. Somebody took the time to count and he he interrupted back, but something fewer than half of the times that, that Trump had interrupted him initially, all of which made for just painful viewing, as you mentioned. Uh, what Biden was doing there, though, was a little bit giving him enough rope. Um, and holding back and and this is an actually an okay thing to do when somebody first interrupts if you step back and say okay you know this person has something that they feel the need to say right now all right let's 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 hear them out for a second and and they let them finish their thought if then when it becomes your turn you pause for just a little bit of a second right and that pause signals, all right, want to take my turn now? I'm going to take my turn now. Everybody good with me taking my turn now? Okay, good. And then begin speaking. If after that pause, you then get interrupted again, that is when you must continue to speak and finish your thought. And the way that I just spoke that there, a um, little bit loud, um, but more importantly, slowly and clearly enough that somebody can hear me even if somebody else is talking over me. I, I am going to finish that thought, damn it, because I waited and this is my turn. They want to be a jerk. That's fine. That's up to them. But I'm going to make sure my audience hears what I have to say. I'm not going to talk for 10 minutes like that, but I'm going to at least get to the end of my thought 
and finish there. This is something you can actually do with interviewers, hosts, whatnot. It's, it is polite after that pause to finish your thought. You need to be allowed to finish your thought. And, and doing that in that way shows strength. So you can maintain that a little bit. Now, what, what did Biden do? Mostly what Biden did was chuckle at him, laugh at him, say, come on, man. And then when he did have the opportunity, look straight in the camera and, and try and connect with folks back home, which ended up working out okay. So that was the, so in terms of you watching that, you feel like he handled it because I literally, I, I don't know how that could have been handled better. So I have, I literally, I have no, <laughs> I have no angle on this at all because I was watching it and just thinking that's, that's a dog's breakfast. I don't even know where to start. There were moments where it was as painful for me as it was for everybody else for sure. But by and large, he managed to, he managed to use Trump's interruptions to illustrate what kind of guy we were dealing with here. And he did get in enough time looking at the camera, talking directly to the people back home that you got a sense of here's a guy who actually wants to get us past this nonsense on the other side of the stage. And that that came across. People didn't like the debate overall. Um, but the impression that Biden made, I thankfully to me, was borne out um, in the polls at the at the end of the debate, and then of course when it counted in November. I think it also speaks to the importance of setting the container, and I know there was a lot of conversation about that after that debate. Which, whose role is it to set the rules of the container? And f- for anybody who's going into a, a high intense high intensity conversation, a conversation where you are likely to be interrupted and spoken over, actually spending some time on that prior, I found it to be really worth it. Where you either have an external person or you very clearly articulate at the beginning, this is the rules. These are these are these are the rules for this interaction. These are important to me. I hope they're important to you. Are they? Great. Then let's proceed. And then you can hold people to that without just asserting yourself out of nowhere because you're all on the same page to begin with. Yeah. I think that's very, very helpful. I, I, I'm trying to imagine Joe Biden turning to Donald Trump and saying, Hey, hey you know, let's, uh, let's just let each other talk. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know how that would. I think, well, that's where the third party comes in, right? You, you need to, uh, you need a higher power who somehow has the strength. Anyway, once again, there's no, there's no easy answers on that one. But I want to just I want to keep moving because I want to quote you back to back to you again. And this is an article that you wrote in the Huffington Post. And you were talking about I think you were actually talking about Obama at the time. And you said the job of president and in when I say president here, read leader, read CEO, is not just to run the country. The job of president is to lead the country. That means when exceptional things happen and people all across the nation are jumping up and down for joy or mad as hell, it is the job of the leader to give voice to those sentiments, to acknowledge and validate and to tell our story. And I just thought, you know, if if leadership came with a manual, I reckon that would be on page one, <laughs> page one of the manual. And that's that's a fine line, right, you know, to I think a lot of us as, as leaders are often afraid to acknowledge the elephant in the room, as in the mad as hell or the stories, for fear that we are just going to make that elephant larger, or it might not have been in the room and now we've put it in there. How do how do you walk that? I feel like this is a variety of lines that we have to walk, but how do we walk that particular line? That particular one, I would, I I'm really glad you brought that up because for folks who are in that position, I think the first thing that you need to recognize is. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't, you know, we're solutions oriented people. We, we get things done. We change things. We solve things. And so if there's a problem, it, it kind of feels like, well, then, then we need to not only acknowledge it, but then we need to have it solved. And some situations are not things you can solve or things you can solve right away in any event. And even still, there is a role for the leader. It is an act of leadership to give voice to that sentiment of the group. That, that is an important and valuable thing for people to hear their own thoughts and feelings reflected in, in the leader's voice back to them and across the whole group. Um, it, and that's not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, that's why that speech writing is a profession. And, uh, um, you know, obviously some of us are having an easier time speaking from the heart, um, than others, but, but doing that is, a, is actually part of the job is actually part of the job of not 
necessarily being the manager, not necessarily being the decider, as an American president once called himself, um, but of being a leader of the community. Now, there may be there may be in certain circumstances, there may be somebody else within the community um, who you can call on um, to speak to a certain um, to a certain sentiment and a certain kind of event. Um, but but making that getting that done is a very valuable um, act. And when it's not done, when there's when there is absolutely no acknowledgement of that from leadership, that's a it's a loss within the community. So I want to I want to segue now into a strange strange territory, and I want to talk about tomatoes. And you know, you wrote in the book about a concept known as the tomato rule. And as someone who has a very sad looking veggie patch, I was like, okay, this is something I need to know about. And the the premise being that when you have a crop of tomatoes, one cold snap, one cold incident can kill the entire crop. And the same being with leadership. You know, you you use strength inadvertently or advertently too hard, too fast one time. And it can kill an, you know, it can kill the trust in an entire team. So I didn't want to talk about why that is, because I think that we all know that that's true. What I wanted to talk about as a as a wannabe farmer and a a leader is once you've done that, because that happens, right? We're human. We have moments where we look back and think, I wished I'd handled that differently. I could have handled that so much better on a different day at a different time. How do we recover then? Are the, are the tomatoes salvageable at that point? <laughs> right, right, right. So, all right, should we start with the rule? Start the with rule, the rule. The rule is just like uh, with all the effort that you put into your garden, one cold snap, just one night where it freezes, um, can render all of that work just dashed, useless. There's a similar thing with strength and warmth, which is to say that no matter what wonderful impression you've managed to make on a given audience uh, over time, that if at some moment you show a moment of, let's just say, zero warmth or very little warmth or or notably lacking in warmth, um, people remember that. That sticks with people. Um, there's a there's a positive analog on the other side, and the positive analog is what we call the home run rule, which is that when you hit your big home run, people remember that more than they remember all the times you grounded out. Um, and so that's that's the positive analog. But but yeah, that that flash of lack of empathy um, that goes down on your permanent record. Basically, um, it sticks with sticks with folks, and it makes sense from a you know, I'm, I don't pretend to be a sociobiologist or whatever, but it does. There is an evolutionary logic to that, that what you really need to know more than anything are people who could turn on you. And and on the strength side, you need to know people who could hit that home run, who have that in them somewhere. Um, you need to watch out for those folks. Um, you need to know that they're capable of moments of great strength and definitely people who are capable of moments of great coldness. And we all have our off moments. Um, and you know, when things get interpreted wrong too, it's not always that (laughs) you've been possessed by the devil actually, but you can come across in ways that, that, uh, don't read the way you wanted them to read or intended them to read in that moment. And you just got to know that that's a thing that I think the important bit is to know, recognize when that happens. And to recognize that there may be a little bit of work to get back to where you want to be and that you can't expect people to just kind of shrug that one off and forget it and keep moving um, and be and have the same level of sort of trust and be buddy buddy again, at least not right away. So you've had an extreme show of, let's just call it strength. If we're, if we're looking at two polarities here, strength and warmth, you've had this extreme show of strength and you've likened it to um, snakes and ladders where, you know, you, you go up, 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 you hit a snake, you come right back down. Do you then need to amplify, you know, warmth to get back on track? Does it take an acknowledgement of what happened, uh, you know, a possible apology or taking of responsibility for what happened? Does it take moving further towards the other side to, you know, climb back the ladders again? Or do you just take it that happened? You know, I'm going to do my best to make sure it doesn't happen again. We all need to move on and just move it to one side and keep going. Yeah. Look, some of this is context, is social context, but if, if it is possible and appropriate, 
to offer the apology at that moment and to offer the acknowledgement and to own that, that is the move that you want to be able to make. And it's interesting the way that happens and, and good apologies. When you see this, um, whether it's in corporate life or in personal life, a good apology actually has two, by now, very familiar elements to it. The first is warmth, is empathy, is understanding and, and showing that you understand the, the uh, implications of your actions and the, basically the suffering that you have caused. And to, to show empathy with that and to say that you really do appreciate what people on the wrong end of that have gone through. And there's, there's some research actually to suggest that going not totally absurdly overboard, but slightly overboard, um, so that the, the, uh, the sorrow or suffering that you are projecting having, uh, imposed on other people is slightly more than what they actually did so that they, they really get that you understand the potential harm done and, and don't think like, you know, this guy just doesn't, this person does, doesn't get what's going on. Um, so you, you can go slightly over, not too overboard, slightly overboard, but you first say that you really do appreciate what that experience was like for them on the other end of it. But that's only half of it because an effective apology that just says, yeah, I get how terrible I am, but doesn't show any interest in being better in the future is of limited use. And so that second piece is showing the determination and the planning and the thought and the focus put into doing better in the future. And so that's, you have your empathy first and then your determination to do better and your, your plans that you're going to follow through on to do play better. And if you, if you think about it in that way and you thoroughly check each one of those boxes, you're going to end up with a pretty good apology. And that's, that's the best first step. Look, only time is going to bring back those tomatoes. I'm so sorry. Now you've got me saying tomatoes. Oh my goodness. Um, tomatoes, tomatoes. Yeah, but I love, uh, I love the, oh. I love the language that you use there around determine, showing, oh. demonstrating determination. And I think that f- from a leadership perspective, that can be applied in so many different areas. You know, your, mm-hmm. your job is to demonstrate determination. Mm-hmm. Your job is to Here. demonstrate okay. what it looks like to strive to move forward, to strive to be better, to strive to do it better. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful framing with which mm-hmm. to take in all situations as a leader. It's, you know, learning to apologize well does not come easily to many people, including very many, very highly accomplished people. Um, a few in the American context come right to mind. But um, but being able to do that and, and own that and own the humanity of being fallible and knowing what to do about that um, is, a, is a powerful thing. It shows that you've learned a few things about life and maybe you're a pretty good pick to be in charge of things. As a final question, just going back to going back to what we talked about in the beginning, which is that formal schooling does not teach you that. It does not teach you persuasion. It does not teach you confidence, certainty, or character. If you were going to design a masterclass for for school children, for your children, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that it would definitely be on the curriculum? I mean, it. I think it's more than one thing in the end. Hopefully, it's a whole curriculum. But I, I do think that one of the one of the hardest things to figure out. And and it's not that we don't monitor ourselves and think about how we're coming across, but getting a getting real a real clear sense and feedback about how we operate in the world. And you know, we have tools in in organizational settings like the 360 and all the rest of that. Um, but I think really thinking about ourselves in terms of our strength and warmth and and how the rest of the world thinks we move through the world, it, it's humbling usually, right? Um, because there's there's some things that are there that we wish that weren't there or the other way around that we wish were there. Um, but but making the time and making the effort and overcoming the awkwardness that's also often involved in these kinds of things to get a sense of how we're doing, to have, be able to have people for whom, uh, with whom we can have those kinds of conversations, those real honest conversations about how we're doing in a way that, that we're safe and can integrate that feedback and to do something besides curl up into the fetal position and never come back again. That I think, uh, that I think is, is one of the less 
obvious um, lessons of this whole of the book and this whole sort of field of work that's most central as well. And also the road to becoming a, a balanced human being. Yeah, I think that's right. It's more than just it's more than just work. Well, thank you, thank you so much for your time. I've loved loved this conversation. I'm going to go and take better care of my tomatoes now. Yes, do take care of them. It is true, one freeze, one freezy moment. And what with the climate these days, I guess there are fewer of them, so that's at least good. Thank you. so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business an enterprise or spreading an idea there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.